those of you that are visiting, I, I've been doing a little um, series, Advent series out of the Gospel of Luke, and for the next 20 minutes or so, I want to just uh, finish that off, and we're going to look again at a portion out of Luke, and we're going to look at Jesus, the Son of God, and why Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you remember the last time I preached out of Luke, I said out of the introduction, the first four verses of Luke, that uh, Luke who writes the, the gospel and also writes the sequel to the gospel, which is the book of Acts, he's writing to a guy called Theophilus. And he's writing to Theophilus and consequently all of us who are reading to know the truth of what Jesus taught and did and how he lived so that he could have a well-grounded faith in Jesus and be saved. And so he's really writing to Theophilus to say, I am a reliable witness. You can trust the things I'm saying. You, I've see, I have eyewitnesses to these accounts that I am, I am writing down. And you can trust me that I'm telling you the story of who Jesus was and who, what Jesus did. And so to do that, unlike the other gospel writers, Luke takes us right back to the beginning of Jesus' life and, and starts to talk about John the baptizer, which uh, the other gospel writers don't do. And um, I said to you last time that there's a pattern to what he does. He contrasts the birth of Jesus with the birth of John the Baptist to give us a, a, a contrast, to show us a couple of things. And that's his design. That's why he writes it like that, is to make us aware of what he's trying to say. And he's trying to show us how these two men, John the baptizer and Jesus, how their destinies have been um, uh, committed by God and planned by God, and that their, their stories dovetail and intermingle with each other. And also, how Jesus is vastly superior in every way to John the baptizer. And so he, he looks, Luke highlights both the similarities between these two men and their stories and the differences. And remember last time I chatted to you, we talked about Zechariah and his response to the angel who came and said, this is what's going to happen to your wife Elizabeth. And we contrasted that to Mary's response, which was a soft and open heart, even though she didn't understand all of what God had planned. Her heart was soft to hear God's Word. And my encouragement to you just um, uh, to reflect on that a little was sometimes we can demand more proof from God than really we need. When sometimes His Word has been spoken, we should be those that respond like Mary with a soft and open heart, not always asking God for extra proof, more evidence, but rather to trust His Word in our life that has already been spoken. And so that's just a little bit of a, a reflection on what I said last time. And so today I want to focus on Gabriel, the angel, and his words that he brought to Mary and how those can help us to understand that Jesus really is the Son of God. So let's, um, it'll come up on the screen, but I'm going to read from Luke 1, 26 to 38. And this is the English Standard Version. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at his saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called 
the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I have no husband? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So I'd like to just make some very simple comments out of this passage. Three very, very simple things that we're going to look at this morning. And I trust they'll help you to continue in your own um, devotions, your own life, to reflect over this time on the incarnation, what it means that Jesus came as the Son of God. God made flesh. And so the first thing that um, Gabriel reveals, he simply says to Mary, your son is going to be great. Isn't that a wonderful promise to receive over your son, your firstborn son? Your son is going to be great. And I hear an invitation in those words of, of uh, Gabriel spoken and re re recorded by Luke. Uh, and he's kind of he's trying to get Theophilus to think a little bit. And he's trying to say this to Theophilus. And I think we all need to hear this. You might never have heard of this woman called Mary. You might never have heard of Nazareth. She might be so obscure and poor that she's not even on your radar. But don't judge by outward appearances, and don't judge how everyone else judges. My promise to you is that this son of yours is going to be great. We reflected last time on, on Theophilus and said that perhaps he was um, a Roman official. And I'm sure as a Roman official, perhaps he studied Greek history, he, he, he um studied Roman history, and he would have reflected on the great heroes of his own culture. And I, I think Luke is trying to say to him, Theophilus, don't be, don't be deceived. Don't think like everybody else. Don't just look at what you see. God's promise to Mary is that this man, this, this uh, child is going to be a great man. And uh, he's inviting Theophilus and all of us to go on this journey in our lives and throughout the reading of this gospel, to have our view of what it means to be great changed, and that we would learn from Jesus what true greatness is. And our world has its own view of what greatness is. And perhaps for Theophilus it was um, very difficult to understand a statement like this, he who is last amongst you is the one who is truly great. That's what Jesus said, Luke 9.48. Uh, he who is least amongst you is the greatest. And he's trying to get Theophilus to say, actually, that's true. Jesus will prove to you, if you will listen to him, if you'll watch his life and see how he lives, you will learn true greatness from this man, Jesus. And I was just uh, thinking this week as we've been reflecting on Aleppo and all that's happening in Syria and the terrible things that have happened there for many, many years, 
how when someone gets a view of greatness for their own lives and is determined to make themselves great, that they can destroy the lives of thousands of other people. Isn't that what history is about? Men saying, I will rise up and be great. And basically everybody else is going to pay for my greatness with their lives. And yet Jesus shows us such a different view of greatness. He who is least amongst you truly is great. And so that's the first thing I'd like to just point out. This amazing promise that Jesus is going to be great in a way that we have not yet understood what greatness is. So the second thing I'd like to look at then is this phrase, Son of God. What is this phrase, what does it mean to be the Son of God? And I don't know if you're um, aware of this, but actually the phrase Son of God is, is common in the Scripture. It's used many times, and it's used many times referring to different people. So, for example, angels are sometimes called sons of God. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, There was a day when the sons of God, referring to the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came amongst them. And there are other references in Psalm 29 and Psalm 82 where this phrase, sons of God, is used in connection with angels. Did you know that the nation of Israel was also called the son of God? Moses is told in Exodus 4.22, You shall go to Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he might worship me. Then we have Israel being called God's son. And thirdly, my third uh, reference would be this. All of us as Christians, all of us that put our faith in Christ, are called sons of God. Um, that's quite uh, clear from the scripture. Romans 8.14 All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And even a little bit closer to our text that we read this morning, in Luke 6, it says this in verse 35, Love your enemies and do good, and lend, uh, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, sons of God. So my point is very simple this morning. I'm not trying to confuse anyone. My point is very simple, is that... The, word, the phrase sons of God is used in a broad way in the Scripture. And they, that, that means for us who are reading the Scripture that we need to be careful when we read the Scripture. And one of the demands of, of really trying to understand what God says through His Word is that we don't insist that words in the Bible or phrases in the Bible mean exactly the same thing in different places in the Bible. And if we do that, we're going to get into trouble. The same word, the same phrase, like Son of God, can mean something very different when Moses says it to when Luke says it. And I put it to you this morning that when he says it in Luke 1, it's different from what he means in Luke 6. And we have to be wise when we read the Scripture and ask God to help us by the power of the Spirit to really understand what he is meaning. Uh, I love um, what C.S. Lewis said. He said, if you want to understand what great people have said... Read what the great people themselves have written. If you want to understand someone like Plato or some great writer, read what they said. Don't go and read someone else's book about what they think they said. Isn't that true? 
If you want to read what someone said, read the original version. Don't read everyone else's interpretation of the version. Why? Because words are very powerful and words have meaning that we need to be aware of. And I, when we speak or when we write or when I preach, I want people to ask what I mean when I'm saying those words, not what someone else means. And so for in, in my, my own journey, let me use an example. When I use the word gospel now when I preach, it means so much more to me than it did five years ago. Why? Because God has been speaking and showing me things that I didn't know five years ago. And so we have to be careful on our journeys as we, as we uh, go forward that we are being accurate in terms of what the Scripture says in different places. And so the principle that we need to follow is a very simple one. Try and use the sentence closest to the thing that you are trying to decide about and then use the dif distant re references and see if there's some connection between the two. But start where you are. And so I'd like to start in this, to follow my own advice, uh, to start with the scripture that we are, are looking at this morning, to show you two things. That when we use this phrase, Son of God, in terms of reference to Jesus, there's an Old Testament analogy of what it means to be uh, of, of Jesus' sonship. And secondly, and importantly, that this, the sonship of Christ, the way that the word is used with him, is unique and perfect and complete in Jesus in a way that it applies to no one else. All right, those are two very simple things I'd like to speak through with you this morning. And so the first is, is that we have this reference in verse 32. It says, The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And here we have a direct connection with this promise of someone coming in David's line who is going to be the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the King of Israel. And that connects to an Old Testament um, uh, um, scripture, 2 Samuel 7, which I'd like to read to you because there are some very important connections. Uh, here Nathan says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your son after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But I will not take away my love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away, um, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever and ever, and your throne will be established forever. It's an amazing prophecy, isn't it? Nathan speaking to David and speaking of what's going to happen through his life. And so we have these very simple connections that I'd like to point out between Luke 1 and 2 Samuel 7. First, Jesus is said to have David as his father, remember, in Luke 1. And in 2 Samuel 7, it's put slightly differently, but it says the coming king will be the offspring of David. But it's really saying the same thing. Secondly, Jesus is called the Son of the Most High in Luke 1. And in 2 Samuel 7, the Old Testament prophecy, God says of this uh, king in David's line, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, very similar language. A third, in Luke 1, it says that Jesus' kingdom will have no end. And in 2 Samuel 7, it says that the throne of Messiah's kingdom will endure 
forever. And so these very simple connections help us to see that Gabriel really is presenting Jesus as the one who will ultimately fulfill this prophecy that has come to David's family through Nathan. So what does this tell us about Jesus and his, and, and the, and his sonship? Well, again, I want to urge us to be careful when we read because the relationship between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment is sometimes not simple, and we have to be careful as we try and understand. Do you notice that in 2 Samuel 7:14 it says the offspring or seed of David would be God's son? And if it simply just said that, it would be quite simple. But do you notice it goes on in the second half of verse 14 and says, When he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men. So how does that work? Because surely the New Testament says that Jesus was without sin. He didn't have any sin. Hebrews 4.15 makes that quite clear. So is this, is this then really a, a, a fulfillment of this prophecy that he is the Messiah if he's being chastened by God? Well, uh, I don't think there's any doubt of what I'm saying to you this morning. And the, the key really is that this, this word seed or offspring in verse 12 is a collective word. It's not really an individual word. It's referring to a house. It's referring to a lineage. It's referring to a family, not an individual. And that's why Luke probably says in Luke chapter 2 that Joseph, um, Joseph was of the house of David, the lineage of David. And when God uh, says in 2 Samuel 7, I will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, he means that through Solomon, his son, he's going to build the temple and that Solomon's throne will last forever. Not because Solomon is going to live forever, but because there will always be a descendant of his with the right to rule Israel. And so it's this collective sense of the words. And that's why you can say in verse 16 about David, your throne will be established forever, even though you die. And so then when God is promising um, that the seed of David will sit upon his throne, he means that he might have to discipline the kings that are in the line of David's throne, but he will never completely withdraw his love from the line of David. And that's really what he's trying to say. And there's a beautiful clarification of that in Psalm 89, where the psalmist says of David, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm. I will establish his line forever and his throne as the days are of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not work according to my ordinance, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their sin with the rod and their iniquity with with scourges, but I will not remove from them my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, and I will not lie to David. His line will endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it will be established forever. It will stand firm like the skies endure. And so we have this implicit thing in all of these scriptures pointing us to the fact that uh, the prophecy is confirming that Jesus is the son in David's line that they have been waiting for. And then this wonderful example in uh, Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. And so basically by the time that Jesus arrives on the scene, it's become clear that the way God would fulfill these promises to David was to finally raise up a son of David who was unlike all the others that had come before, who was not a sinner, who would not need to be disciplined, but who was holy and just and would live in righteousness forever. And so that's the first thing we see. Jesus is the promised son of David. And then secondly, Solomon and all his descendants partially fulfilled this prophecy in, in 2 Samuel 7, but Jesus is the final and the ultimate perfect fulfillment of it. And so uh, Jesus is unique as the, the eternal seed of David, and also his sonship is unique. And that's quite clear from verse 35. It says, The angel says to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you by the power of the Most High. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So all these other descendants of David were called sons of God because they belonged to David's line. That's how their relationship worked. It was the reverse with Jesus. His divine sonship qualified him to be the final fulfillment of the prophecy of David's line. And I could put it very simply. He is not the Son of God because He is King. He is King because He is Son of God. And that's why He is different and unique, unlike anyone who's gone before Him. And so God demonstrates that in a very unique way. In, we, we know um, that there's a... Uh, the, the, the inception of the birth is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why God is demonstrating this in an incomprehensible and very, very wonderful way. Mary and Joseph had not had any sexual relations until after Jesus was born. And so it says the Most High overshadows her. And this greatest event in history, this, the appearance of God, the God-man, the, the incarnation of Christ, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I love it, um, put very simply, again, I want to quote C.S. Lewis. He says this, when you beget, you beget something as the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers. A bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. By the same analogy, God begets or fathers Jesus. He begets God. As Paul says in Colossians 2.9, in Him the fullness of God dwells bodily. Isn't that amazing? That's what we celebrate. We believe the fullness of God. God made man dwelt in the baby that was born. Same substance as the Father, as the writers of the creeds have said. The same substance of the Father is in the Son, Jesus. And so, this is really what um, Luke is trying to say, and for what Gabriel prophesies, that this divine sonship is inseparable from the virgin birth, and it's unique. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, therefore the child will be called the Son of God. And so the very simple answer, we can say that with confidence, is that why was Jesus God's son? Simply because Joseph wasn't his father, God was his father. 
And there's one final implication of this that I want to stress as we look forward to the new year and look forward to the rest of our lives walking with Jesus. I love verse uh, 2 Samuel 17 verse 12 says, He will rule over the house of Jacob. He will be the Messiah. He will be the king. And the last thing that Luke stresses to us, it says, He, he will reign forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And I want to encourage you with that as we th look back on 2016, as we look forward to 2017 with all of the stuff that's happening in the world. The reign of Jesus is certain. His reign is going to carry on forever. It's been inaugurated already. His reign will know no end. That's the reason for our hope as believers. Uh, and I want to encourage you, uh, if you've got any reason to share with anyone over this Christmas season or with your friends and family, the reason for your hope, and I hope you are filled with hope for the future, the reason for your hope is simply this, is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and He will reign with all of those who trust Him forever and ever, and His kingdom will know no end. That's the reason for my hope. I trust that's the reason for your hope. That we'll take that into 2017 and live with that hope deep in our hearts. Jesus is the Son of God. That is our hope. His kingdom and His reign will rule forever. Amen.